0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: We talked about this yesterday, and uh, of course, this was the topic of the blog and commentary. uh, And it started with uh, a report over the weekend from the Toronto Star that suggested that uh, three former employees of uh, the Green Party, three former uh, workers, um, were upset with the way that they have been treated or were treated uh, by leader uh, Kathleen May or sorry, uh, um, Miss May, <laughs> Elizabeth May. And uh, the fascinating thing in all of this, and y- you know, lots of times we- we've certainly heard of these allegations, and it- it's certainly been in the news of late, and there certainly is a, a-, a changing of the culture, a changing of the guard per se, uh, how we view these sorts of things. And whether this plays out one way or the other, I'm not sure uh, now. Elizabeth May has uh, announced that she is uh, calling an independent investigation uh, into all of this. Uh, But really, nothing was said about it over the weekend. And what really got me was the press release that was issued by the Green Party, which basically said if a man had done this, nobody would be questioning it. Yet when a woman does it, she's accused of bullying. And to me, that sort of condoned the behavior and, and basically admitted that, yeah, she's like this, but because she's a woman, you're questioning her. Uh, which inspired me to write the commentary that, uh, that bullying knows no gender. Bullying is bad no matter what the gender is. And, you know, again, whatever has gone on in this situation, time will tell how it plays out. But the press release to me was incredibly condescending, uh, made mention of uh, uh, the man who got upset because of the way an office was painted, Uh, just assuming that the three staffers are all men. Well, they're not. And again, uh, how this plays out, you know, I I certainly don't mean, you know, and I got this yesterday from Alyssa Freeman that, you know, you can't compare this to the sexual assault allegations. I'm not. Never did. Never tried to. But I think the press release is condescending, and I think it takes advantage of the whole movement. Thinking that for somehow that, She gets a free ride because of the movement that's going on. You know, and and it's simply not right. It doesn't make sense. And you can't hide behind the movement and and say, well, gee whiz, if a man was doing this, it it wouldn't be an issue. You know, I, I just I don't see how that holds water. So now it has been announced uh, that there will be an independent investigation into this, in which I got an email from a lady by the na- uh, name of uh, Vanessa Bristolin, one of the complaints and the allegations made against Elizabeth May, and she is with us now. Vanessa, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this.
2: Oh, hi. Thank you for having me.
1: So tell us your story. What, what's this about? What happened?
2: Well, I, I think that uh, a lot of information has gone out in the press, and, it, and as such, it's become a little bit convoluted and i think that we have to remember that what this complaint is really about is workplace bullying and harassment mm-hmm. uh... and and i understand uh... of course that sexual harassment is horrific Um, but i don't think it's fair to say that uh... being bullied and demeaned in the workplace is not as important as being called yummy in an elevator Um and i think that that is is something that we need to recognize that bullying and harassment in the workplace is in breach of ontario's uh... labor laws Uh, So it is something that to us is a very serious issue. And also, um, we also have to note and remember that the Hill Times article, actually, uh, seven employees have come forward. And I know that uh, a lot of the media is holding on to this number of three because we are the three who put our names to the complaint. However, it is very important to state that it is, in fact, seven former employees.
1: So what can you tell us about your experience uh, working there? What was the environment when you were there?
2: Well, I, I don't really want to go into all of the specifics again, um, as we've, we've actually laid it out there quite a bit in the media. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. do want to say that uh, what many of uh, the former employees or what all of the former employees who have come forward uh, have called the working environment and what other people who uh, have not even come forward but who have uh, reached out to us have called the environment was a toxic working environment.
1: Uh, What were your thoughts on the release of uh, the press release from uh, the Green Party in regard to all of this that came out over the weekend?
2: Well, I would agree that uh, uh, bullying doesn't have a gender Um, and that there are a great many uh, men and women out there who have been or are being bullied in the workplace by an employer, employer, regardless of the gender of that employer.
1: Um, the, the the press release for the Green Party said that uh, she is being held to a different sta- standard than her male counterparts. Do you believe that? Uh,
2: I, I can't speak to what uh, the Green Party, um, what their opinion is of the standard she's being held to. You know, for our part, we certainly want all employers to be held to the same standard regardless of their gender in terms of whether or not they are bullying uh, employees in the workplace.
1: I guess the point that I'm making in, in regard to uh, the press release Vanessa and, yeah. th- and and that's what really sort of did it for me because uh, <laughs> again you know these things happen these complaints happen and they go through the, the process and what-have-you and again I, I certainly didn't mean to draw a comparison between this issue yeah. and the issue of, of sexual assault or, or, or anything like that but I, I thought that the press release was almost flip in the sense that it 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 kind of belittled or was condescending to the people who complained uh
2: you know again i think that a lot of people who come forward are faced with an uphill battle in terms of uh how people are going to want to defend themselves in the in the instances of these allegations um so i think it's it's unfortunate uh that uh, we are you know being blamed or called liars uh or anything else uh, that has transpired Um, i believe sour uh,
1: grapes was used
2: (laughs) yeah sour grapes was used yes so, uh, look, I don't know if seven employees, former employees, would all be coming forward on the issue of sour graves. And I also think it's important uh, to remember that we are taking a huge risk uh, by doing this. Um, several, several people have spoken out. They have signed um, uh, releases, things like that. So uh, these are not risks that I think that any of us have taken lately.
1: Uh, I just want to read the following and then I'll I'll let it it go with the press release stuff. A man with these qualities is admired for his leadership. A woman is portrayed as overbearing and bullying. These outdated gender stereotypes have no place in the 21st century. It's extremely unlikely that a decade-old antidote about a man's frustration with his office paint job would merit national news.
2: Look, I've worked, I've worked for a lot of women in, in my day. Um, some of them are wonderful, uh, some were not so wonderful. And I myself am, am a woman, and I think I consider myself a strong woman and an assertive woman. Um, but I think that uh, it is important to treat people with respect in the workplace. I, don't, I think it's important to not make anyone feel... Uh, that they don't want to come into work, and I think that that, you know, the answer of uh, well, that person should just quit and go find another job. Like that's just not an acceptable answer anymore in our in today's uh, climate and society.
1: So, what about the investigation? Uh, Elizabeth May came out and said that uh, that there will be an investigation, an independent investigation through, I guess, an attorney, lawyers at Tories. Your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, my thoughts on that. We, um, we are certainly pleased that the party is taking the allegations seriously and that this investigation is, is uh, going to take place. Um, of course, we do uh, want to make sure that the scope of the investigation will include um, all of the complainants. Uh, and everyone who has any information, uh, you know, who may have witnessed it or anything else. So that's that's very, very important for us. And it's also um, important for us to know how the uh, document of the report is going to be dealt with once it is... Um, Obtained because we have to remember the Green Party of Canada is the client in this process and that document is protected by solicitor client privilege. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we want to be sure that all of the information that is obtained in the report as opposed to just some of the information, all of those things. So, these are the questions that we have. Uh, these are the questions that we uh, have and are continuing to put forward to Sheila Block. We have received some of the answers. We um, have not received all of the answers and we do have further questions. Uh, so, I think we're going to have to see how that plays out in terms of uh, how comfortable we are.
1: So are the seven uh, of you working together on this? Are you working for the Common Cause? Uh, How organized is this?
2: Uh, Well certainly the three of us who have come forward initially are um, other people that have uh, you know come forward and it's only because uh, you know, at this point, we're all sort of being blamed or accused together. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't, um, we, we came to this separately. Um, and certainly anyone else who is hearing this that have, has experienced the same thing uh, should get in touch with us. And all of those others uh, that were involved, uh, you know, some of those people, I, I would say most of those people do want to be heard in terms of the investigation process.
1: So what happens now, Vanessa? Where does this go? How far do you take this?
2: Well, again, we are really hoping uh, that we are going to be able to uh, work together with Sheila Block um, to make this a thorough and truly independent investigation. And I I think that we uh, will have to wait uh, the outcome of that investigation process at this point.
1: Uh, What would make you happy? What would what would resolve this for this group?
2: Um, I think that we would like to see an acknowledgement of what we have put forward. Uh, We would like to see an acknowledgement of the fact that we did internally make complaints uh, long before coming out, uh, that those complaints, I, I, if you read they, the, they tr- say the, they, the Toronto Star article, says quite clearly that uh, Patricia Farnese of the f- uh, lawyer on the fund uh, did receive the complaints and that nothing was done about it. So these are the kind of things that we would like to see uh, acknowledged and addressed. The they
1: did question why you didn't or there were no formal complaints made. I, I had read that. I mean, obviously, that's not the case.
2: Well, it's interesting that within the same article uh, that one person is uh, saying that no formal complaints were made and that another person within the same party uh, actually openly states that a formal complaint was uh, received and, in fact, discussed, and that nothing uh, came of that complaint. So, uh, you know, that contradiction uh, is there in in their own words.
1: So do you get the feeling they're trying to sweep this under the rug?
2: You know, I don't want to uh, speak to, to what their thought process is, really.
1: So your thoughts now that uh, it appears that this has come out and it's getting some media attention and it, it looks like there is going to be an investigation and a report uh, coming forward.
2: Yes. So we are, we are certainly hoping for the best. Uh,
1: are you surprised that this is going on right now in politics?
2: Uh, I think that in today 's climate i 'm not surprised. I think it certainly uh, has been a long time coming you know as, as a woman you know who has been in the workforce many years you know uh, these uh, all of these things are prevalent. Uh, I think at some point uh, it was going to come to a head, and I, I would hope that it was going to come to a head uh, so i 'm certainly not surprised that it 's coming out uh, you know and, sp- and especially propelled by things like social media and i do i hope that it's actually going to i know that it's going to be a painful process i know that people are going to say well now we can witch-hunt and we can just uh... accuse anyone and they're going to be tried in the press Um and i i think it's also important to remember that a lot of those people who have come out in the press have tried to go through the internal processes first before coming out in the press and that's very very important uh so I don't believe that this is really turning into a big witch hunt and I think that if anyone is falsely accused that those people will ultimately be exonerated um, and I, I do hope that this is going to lead to positive change moving forward, because no one deserves to be sexually harassed or bullied or belittled or demeaned in the workplace.
1: We that aren't involved in in the same circles that that you people are in Canadian or Ontario politics, uh, we hear the word whispers a lot. There's whispers going on. Is this the tip of the iceberg, Vanessa?
2: It may be. <laughs> I know. <clears throat> Sorry about that. I know that um, there are certainly a lot of open secrets on parliament hill uh... which is something that all of our or many of our mps alluded to uh... yesterday while they were debating bill c sixty-five uh... which for those who don't know was to put in place um, you know harassment policies within uh... parliament hill because uh, they actually currently don't have a real uh... unified um, human resources uh... manual in that sense <laughs> So. Uh, This is, you know, a lot of people have used the words open secret. And I do think that uh, everyone and all of those MPs acknowledge that they we could probably see more of this moving forward.
1: Uh, This is being portrayed right now as a gender issue. Do you think it is? We're hearing the words a lot. Men, older men preying on younger women. Obviously, that's a massive part of all of this. But Mm -hmm. is it a gender issue?
2: Uh, Well, it seems that sexual harassment, I mean, in terms of the numbers, certainly uh, it is more prevalent among men. Uh, However, bullying is something that is not a gender issue. Bullying, anyone can bully someone.
1: And it's important we keep these two separate and and treat them differently, is it not?
2: Well, I think, I don't want to say that we should treat them differently. Yeah, that's a bad choice of words. But but (laughs) certainly treat
1: them individually.
2: Uh, Well, I, I think we should treat... I actually think that we should treat it the same. I think that it is anyone who is making a work, uh, work pra- workplace an oppressive place for workers yeah. is a person who shouldn't be there or who should be uh, educated and told that they should not be treating workers in this manner. And I don't I don't want to make this distinction. And I'm a little bit frustrated with the distinction to say, you know, this is worse or that is worse. Yeah. It's all
1: I, bullying. It's just one uses sex, one doesn't, I guess.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Good point. Uh, So uh, what do you hope to hear soon next, Vanessa?
2: Well, of course, we are, you know, as I said, we uh, have sent some letters off to to Sheila Block, or sorry, some questions off to Sheila Block, and we have received some of our answers. We will be sending uh, another letter outlining, outlining uh, more questions, and so we look forward to, to the response, and we look forward to trying to work through this process with her.
1: Vanessa Bristolen has been with us, one of the complainants in the allegations made against Elizabeth May. Vanessa, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. Appreciate this. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The State of the Union Address taking place tonight, the President of the United States. Uh, it's looking like some of the topics will be including the economy, which of course has been doing quite well, and a push for bipartisan congressional action on immigration, which of course uh, shut the government down uh, not that long ago. To talk about all of this, George Breckinridge is with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. He is with us now. George, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this.
3: No, hi, Scott.
1: So, uh, any want to look into your crystal ball, George, and tell us what you think's going to happen tonight?
3: <laughs> well, It's difficult to know, isn't it? Because he, he, one, you know, in some speeches he's he's uh, he's very subdued, like he was in Davos. It was a pretty, you know, subdued reading from the teleprompter kind of speech. And his first sort of similar address to Congress a year ago was also fairly subdued. So you would expect, and they're saying, you know, he's going, to be, he's going to be an appeal for bipartisanship, for support from the Democrats, but it's a pretty raucous uh, audience a lot of the time. You know, they're, they're in the last number of years, there's been a kind of a rival cheering section. You know, yeah,
1: some are, some are sitting on their hands, the others are standing up and cheering. Well,
3: exactly, and, and the Republicans are on one side, the Democrats are on the other side of the chamber. So it, it, it's possible that um, the question is, will he stick to his script, you see? Mm. And uh, and uh, the question is, uh, it seems to me that there's a possibility. I think that's, that's how he'll start out. I think that's what he... Everybody's telling him he needs to do, but the atmosphere could, uh, you know, send him into one of his rants. You know, the, the sort of stuff that he really loves to do.
1: Well, you know, you bring up a valid point about the audience, and yeah. and and obviously you're on this team or that team. Do you think that could trigger something?
3: Well, I think it might. It depends on the on how sort of. Well-behaved, relatively speaking, the audience actually is.
1: Do you think the audience is going to try to get him to slip up or go off course? They might.
3: They might. Well, I mean, it's a a kind of a state occasion. You know, it's it's a a bit like, you know, the, the parallel, sort of parallel anyway. It's like the speech from the throne. Yeah. In Canada, the difference being of course, that in Canada, if you have a majority, you're telling people what you're going to do, yeah. in the American case, it's always not just, it's not just trump, it's always true that the president can only recommend and, so uh, he can't control the Congress, and so uh, it's difficult to know what the atmosphere will be like.
1: Uh, you talked about Davos. Did Trump learn anything in Davos, especially <laughs> when it, you know, when you're rubbing shoulders with world leaders? Even the conversation <laughs> and him sitting down with the British Prime Minister yeah. uh, seemed almost awkward at best, considering uh, well, what I they've talked to, about.
3: He was trying to repair yeah. relations there. I think, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, d- does he learn anything from that once he gets out of his little bubble and goes and talks to the rest of the world?
3: Well, that's a good question. I mean, he's not known for learning. He, he's very incurious. That's what everybody says. You know, he doesn't, he's not interested <laughs> in so much stuff, you know. That's and, frightening
1: when you think about it. Well, I
3: know, of course. It is. Oh, my. Yeah. So, but on, but on the other side of that, though, is that they say that um, he likes information in in person. Mm. You know, so he likes talking to people. Now, of course, the danger is that he repeats whatever, you know, his views are influenced by whoever he talked to last. There's a yeah. lot of evidence of that as well. So I don't. I doubt that he learned terribly much, but uh, he was pretty well on his best behavior over there. Yeah. Uh,
1: regarding a trip to London, does this not become harder the longer that he waits? Does he not draw more attention to himself by just putting it off longer? Well, longer? I think.
3: Yeah, I think you're right because the the opening of the new splendid empathy uh, was an obvious yeah. obvious occasion for him to go. And uh, the fact that he 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 not only uh, you know did it, decided not to go, but he made you know he got the whole thing completely wrong. He blamed them for spending so much money where well, they didn't spend anything because mm. they were the existing embassies in a very very high priced district. So they sold that yeah. and built the other one. But um, and also, of course, for, for with Britain, he tweeted these these nasty racist things. Yeah. So he was, he almost, he more or less apologized, the closest I've seen to him apologizing, sort of, you know, sort of, he never quite apologized, but he sort of apologized. Well, the, he, the, he, he, he alluded
1: to the fact that he didn't really know where these yeah, videos were I mean, from. But if they're from places like you say, I'll apologize. Well, yeah, they are. So does that mean
0: you well, apologize? They were,
3: they were pretty vicious stuff. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's really no excuse. No. So um, the feeling in Britain, I mean, Theresa May have made the mistake. Of inviting him to a state, okay, you know, a state visit, which is all pomp and circumstance and the queen and everything. Yeah. Far too, you know, you don't right off the bat. I mean, it, that was a silly thing to do. She was doing it for her own kind of reasons, I think. Mm. And they've backed off that, you know, saying, "Well, maybe eventually we'll have a state visit." So they're talking about what they call a working visit, quote unquote, which is a different sort of thing. Just it goes there and meets with people, and the queen is kept out of it, and all the rest of it so the embassy would have been the obvious occasion to do that and I, it, I understand it, it, he wants uh, to uh, next
1: I, month, I think yeah. I understand he wants to ride in the Queen's carriage
3: <laughs> I'm sure he does <laughs>
1: <laughs> alright so uh, tonight with the State of the Union yeah. uh, is he going to sell that America is great again
3: Oh, you bet. I mean, you bet. I mean, absolutely. He's good. It would be lots of boasting. I mean, and the economy is doing extremely well. Mm-hmm. Now, he's building on, you know, what Obama did. Obama was the one who really turned it around out of the crisis. But he's, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't done anything to damage that. So it's, it's roaring pretty well. So he naturally he'll boast all about that.
1: Can he but, take credit for the U.S. economy? Um, oh, you know, as you mentioned, it, it was starting to turn around prior to his presidency. Yet on the other hand, companies like Walmart have come out and praised him for his tax cuts and rewarded yeah, employees yeah. and rewarded employees with raises.
3: Well, I think most economists would say that the presidential action has comparatively little to do. With the actual state of the economy, there are other glo- you know global and national factors that work. But uh, on the other hand, presidents always claim you know claim when they go- is going well and they get blamed when it doesn't go well, even although their influence is much less than people seem to think it is.
1: How far does it go when companies like Walmart say, "Hey, it's these tax breaks that have allowed us to expand and do this?
3: Well, that's a plus. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the on the other hand, the polls show that the, the tax cut has not been terribly popular, partly because it didn't give very much, of anything, and it actually raised taxes on some kind of ordinary, you know, ordinary people. Um, so, and, and it was so obvious. I mean, they went. The Republicans really went overboard. When they had the op- when they finally got the opportunity, this is the one thing that really gets them up in the morning. Tax and tax decrease, tax decrease, tax cuts, and they really went overboard in 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 you know in weighting it to the corporate and rich end, and that's the Democrats have been running on that. And I think so they overdid it in a way, and didn't give enough two kind of ordinary people.
1: Hmm.
3: But uh, y- y- obviously, obviously the companies um, are very happy because their taxes were cut very substantially.
1: Uh, you bring up my next question. Uh, leaders in both the United States and Canada uh, will say that the economies are booming. Are mm-hmm. average citizens seeing this? Are they buying
3: in? well they they are more they are more than they did. I mean, there was a long time when even when the unemployment level was low, the wages had not were stuck and the evidence seems to be that wages have been increasing you know, so some people are beginning to feel it. I'm sure lots of people don't and and it depends on what part of the country you're talking about as well and some industries are doing extremely well. And others, of course, you know, like coal mining and some kinds of manufacturing are not doing well at all. So it depends a little bit where you live as well. But uh, yeah, I think people genuinely think the economy is doing very well. In fact, so you get to the point where people are saying, "How long can this last?" If you look at the history, mm. I mean, you know, these kind of booms don't last forever.
1: No, many are predicting a recession. So. That's right, you yeah. that,
3: or at least some kind of some kind of recession
1: correction. Yeah,
3: yeah, and if that happens during. Trump's title uh, term in office, which it might well, because it's been going for some time. It's been going since about 2010. Um, then, of course, you know, he would get blamed. So,
1: uh, It seems that uh, Donald Trump likes divisiveness, likes confusion, yeah. likes to, you know, yeah. even take members of his own team that are on the same side and sort of turn them against each other in right. hopes that it brings out the best in them. Right. Right. Will we hear that divisive tone, that confusion, uh, that domination in this speech, well, or, or do you think this will be used more to unite?
3: Well, they say that's what he's going to do. They, they you know, they, they kind of leak some information. but with him, it, it, it's, it's very difficult, to, he's very difficult for even his advisors to predict. I mean, nobody quite knows how, how he'll feel when he gets up there. <laughs> It all depends on him, you know, how he feels on any given moment, I think. Well, he, they say he's going to, to try to reach out for the Democrats. Now, a good reason for doing that, of course, would be that the Democrats are extremely, very likely to to, to, to do very well in the November elections. And so the second two years, he, would, he may well be faced with a Democratic Congress. And unless he's able to deal with them to some extent, it, you know, he'll get nothing whatsoever done.
1: So, so will there's, he be there's less a
3: reason to and and of course also if he, if he wants to do things like a big infrastructure program which he's always talked about but he's never really proposed mm. um, he would need democratic help absolutely
1: so you think he will be less hostile less
3: uh... well that's the intention I think that's what that's what his 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 people around him are saying is going to he wants to do. But to say he's so volatile; you never can sure that he'll stick to the script.
1: Does he need to mention, or will he mention Hillary or Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it seems like he just throws that in there to, to you, you know, know to fire up the he, I base. Know, you
3: know he he can't get over the fact that. That, uh, that, well, uh, that Obama was not only so popular and still very popular, but, but greatly respected in a way that Trump has never been. Mm. And, and that's a source of deep grievance to him. Even in New York, I mean, he wasn't really respected by the business community in New York. And, and Hillary, he can never get over the fact that he actually didn't win the popular vote. And so there's some sh- little shadow over his election, you know. So he he hangs on to these kind of grievances in a strange way, which is con- totally counterproductive. I mean, it doesn't do him any good whatsoever. But it's his personal feelings which dominate everything.
1: Uh, clearly, he has support, but clearly he doesn't have support. Those yeah. people speak up. He reacts to them. Yeah. Um, how was he respected in davos how you know he must know when he's in washington that that some people look at him and just laugh yeah. other people look at him and hover on every word right. what about with world leaders i mean it's well, it's, it's somebody, different when it's different when democrats do it but when other world leaders do it
3: well i think i think they were, people were relatively pleased from what i could gather i mean it's davos you've got a like a lot of of rich mm-hmm. business types as well as a number of political figures and I think they were all a little uh, kind of well, the first time he. Well, I think they're kind of curious as to where you know what kind of Trump would show, which Trump would show up. Mm. But he was fairly uh, respectful and fairly muted and that sort of thing. So they were fairly encouraged. And um, but but overall, the uh, his standing across the across the world is really very pretty low. So America has lost a lot of standing in the world by his uh, by his antics, by his by the kind of person he is, by the kind of things he says about people.
1: More likely that he would stick to the script at Davos than with the State of the Union.
0: I
3: think so. I think yeah. well, I think both. I think he he has every reason. The first address he gave to Congress shortly after his, his inauguration was a very strange, aggressive kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but his, his subsequent, uh, address to Congress, which is sort of the State of the Union uh, last year, um, was much more subdued and much more kind of almost normal in terms of, you know, this is what, what I want, you know, this is praising the country and you know, saying all the usual patriotic things and then saying, this is what we're going to do, you know. Now it hasn't quite worked out like that for a lot of things, but, uh, so it will be interesting to see what, uh, exactly what kind of mood he strikes because, uh, on on not only on infrastructure but also on immigration, which is obviously a thing yeah. with him. You know, he's a, he's got an obsession with the with the cutting immigration and stuff like that.
1: Will we hear that in the speech tonight? Oh, I've
3: definitely. I think. Oh, absolutely. That's that's almost the next uh, thing up, the next issue. Yeah. He wants the to whole push. Dreamers
1: thing, and such. and
3: he's got to deal with the Democrats on that. You know, as well in the Senate. So. Uh,
1: so do you think his tone will be more welcoming?
3: Yeah, I think I think that's the intention. I say that's the intention, and that's a sensible thing to do. Absolutely, that would be the most, make by far, the most sense politically. But he's such a strange guy. I mean, he's so he's so driven by his own personal feelings and and emotional needs that a lot of what he does is totally counter, politically counterproductive. You know, he's not very good at at all at doing things which are politically helpful to him. (laughs) It's overridden by his feelings and his resentments and his everything else, you know, so you never quite know uh, how this is going to play.
1: How long can he keep mentioning past candidates, whether it's within his own party who ran against him, whether it's Hillary, whether it's Barack? You know, at what point, how long do you get that
3: pass? (laughs) Well, he's a man who holds a grudge. <laughs> we can see that. <laughs> and and any, he obviously, any, anything he interprets as a slight or a disrespect or questioning how wonderful he is, he holds on to and he hits back and, and he doesn't let it go easily. You know, he doesn't let it go. And um, so he's driven by these kind of emotions, and that's what makes him so unpredictable. And so I say, so much of what he does is politically counterproductive. Hmm. You know, he's... Turned that,
1: out. that being said, uh, George, he, he's been doing this for over a year now. Yeah. Uh, have we finally, as you mentioned, nobody knows what's going to happen today. Nobody can predict what's going to happen. But has it got to the point where we've just learned to expect the unexpected and no one cares anymore? You just wait and see how it all falls out tomorrow?
3: Yeah. I think so. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about the, his relations with the Congress, I mean, he seemed to think originally that it was just like you know they would you know he could order them to do things. That's never ever the case in the American system. It's not mm-hmm. set up like that, and so he can't order them. And so when he found he couldn't order them, he really kind of they learned to. He he was a very presidential leadership is is usually very important. When the Congress gets stuck, you know, when the parties get stuck or his own party gets stuck or something like that, he can bang heads together and he can, you know, he can negotiate compromises. He didn't do any of that. He, he's totally unreliable on that because he would, if you take immigration, he changed his mind, you know, almost daily on what he was proposing and what he would approve. And so they, they have increasingly learned, his own party particularly, has increasingly learned just to ignore him. Because he will sign anything they put in front of him, any legislation they pass, uh, you know, which is difficult to do, any legislation they get passed, he will sign. Why? Because he wants to win. He He wants to be able to hold it up and say, look, this is what I did. And he had comparatively little to do with it.
1: George, I can't let you go without asking you the state of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, can, can they regroup in the short amount of time? Well, and, they're they're
3: and... in a total mess. I mean, that's a total collapse. And uh, the fact that Doug Ford is, is promising to run doesn't make it any easier for them. I don't think. Yeah. It uh, and it, the notice is so short. I mean, Brown was always um, kind of a doubtful leader. I mean, people didn't know an awful lot about him. And his caucus was not entirely happy with him. I don't think you know the way he, the way he won the nomination by simply gaming the system in many respects. I think, and so he, the question about how Brown was going to do during an election was really the main determinant, I think, of what would happen in an election. I mean, the Liberals have been in power for a long time, and, and Kathleen's not all that popular. And but and and uh, Andrea Horvath is fairly still fairly low key, and so the question entirely was: how is Brown going to do? Is he is you know he's got a lead in the polls at the minute, but he's not well known. He's never run a campaign before. He's not doesn't seem terribly likable in a lot of ways. You know. So a yes. second chance for the PCs? Uh, if they had more time, it could could certainly be that. Mm. Yeah, they could come up with a bit what I think would be a better leader, a more acceptable leader. But whether they can do that in the scramble of, you know, three or four months is is, is very doubtful, I think.
1: George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: No problem, Scott. Yeah.
1: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Will Doug Ford's leadership bid uh, help or hurt the PCs? Uh, this is a question, of course, lots are asking and uh, no real answers at this point, although Vic Fidelli has announced t- today that he will be the interim leader only and will not seek permanent uh, leadership of the party. Uh, what are the reasons behind all of that? Uh, let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctor fellow in history at the University of Toronto and with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Vic Fideli is out, only in as interim leader. Are you surprised? You know, I am. I figured that you
4: know, with Patrick Brown kind of you know dropping out so close to the election in such a kind of un un you know unexpected fashion, that you would see um, if if they were going to kind of select an interim leader, I would almost expect that person at the very least to to contest the seat. Um, and in some ways, I'm maybe even a little surprised they even decided to have a leadership convention anyway. And you know, in, in this particular case, I thought maybe he just would have been the, the guy to go into the election.
1: It, it, it seems that this was quite fluid and no one really knew what they were going to do. Like, I'm wondering if when Vic Fideli took this assignment, if he thought he would run for the leadership or if part of the deal was that, no, if you're going to do this, you're not going to run. It, it, it didn't seem that to be much certainty there. I, w- I wonder what he thought going in and how that has changed now. I mean you know a lot of that
4: probably you know maybe it'll come out you know in the future, but you know generally when there's kind of interim leadership type things there's there's often a kind of understanding that the interim leader won't seek yeah. um, the permanent job kind of based on the idea that you know this is meant to kind of ensure the party is stable and that that person shouldn't have an undue advantage because they you know would have the kind of incumbency, but in this particular case it's not it's not a it's not a uh, conventional interim leadership, I mean, we're so close to the election, I would have to think that at the very least, Fideli would have had the option Mm. to to seek the permanent nomination. Um, I don't think it would have been, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, details aren't out yet, I don't think he would have been formally barred as it is in in some other cases. When Bob Ray was the interim leader of the Liberals, there was an understanding that he wouldn't seek the permanent nomination, and of course he didn't but I think this is a totally different case.
1: But, and they did clarify at one point, saying that, n- that this time he would be allowed to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, the term interim leader wasn't used until very recently. I mean, when all this first went down a couple of days ago, nobody used the term interim leader.
4: No, I think you're right. I think, you know, what happened here is there seemed to be uh, two kind of tensions here. The first thing was after Patrick Brown went, uh, you know the caucus made it clear they didn't want him, and the caucus, um, you know, kind of selected Vic Fideli as the kind of interim leader, or or as the leader, or, or interim. Or who knows what we would call him at that point? But it seems like the party itself, the executive, the the the, the non caucus based leadership of the party, wanted a convention. In which case, he kind of had to then, you know, become the interim leader because for him to be, you know, the the full fledged leader, that would require. He probably win that process, so I think that's where a lot of the confusion came from, based on on uh, you know different kind of takes on this issue.
1: And it seems now it's not even really set in stone. Uh, um, some are griping that there shouldn't be a leadership convention. Yeah,
0: I
4: mean, it, it's it's kind of a mess, frankly, yeah. because you know, in my view, and I generally, you know, uh, support. Uh, the idea that the party membership through the executive or through the, the, the rank and file at the local level uh, should make these kind of big decisions. But, you know, that's not a a a, a rule uh, written in stone. And in cases like this, I don't think it's unreasonable for the caucus to look amongst each other and say, look, amongst the 40, 50, odd, 60, whatever, odd of us that are here, we can actually... Um, find somebody who can lead us into the next election and do a credible job and that they should be trusted to make that decision. Um, and, and I think that's what they probably, you know, should have done. But it seems that like now they, what they've done is they're, just, they're, they're in this weird nether region where, mm. one, they're having a convention less than six months from the election. And two, um, you know, the one the person who's the interim leader in this case, the one person that might be able to kind of give a kind of early pitch to the party and the electorate, isn't in it for the long term. And I think that's a really awkward position for the party.
1: Uh, this seemed to uh, clarify and become more clear, I guess, after Doug Ford announced that he was uh, going to start a bid for the leadership race. Do you think that affected Vic Fideli's position at all?
4: I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it did definitely make it clear that, that that there is a a sense that this, this can't be just a coronation. That there are elements within the kind of broader conservative movement in Ontario right. that want to see a challenge here, uh, and who knows, you know, Rob Ford's ability or Doug Ford's sorry, uh, Doug Ford's ability to build a kind of base outside of the GTA to kind of contest that. Does he uh, is he able to win? You know, more moderate conservatives. Is he able to win? You know, people who you know might not be Trumpian in their perspective on conservatism. Uh, who knows? But it seems to me like. Once that did happen, you're right that all prospects of, okay, are we gonna kind of put this all back in the box and go with an interim leader, I think that was certainly off the table. Whether that affected Fidelity's decision to not seek the permanent leadership, I don't know.
1: Uh, so does he hurt or help the PCs, Doug Ford?
4: Uh, I don't know, really. I mean I would say, you know, conventional conventional wisdom would be that he certainly doesn't help. Um, he has a lot of the baggage his brother did, but his brother was much more likable. Uh, his brother was endearing in a kind of way, even for people who maybe disagreed with him a lot. There's something about Rob Ford mm. that I think a lot of people liked, even though they didn't like Rob Ford, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but I, I think that's kind of valid. Whereas I think Doug doesn't have that personability.
0: Mm. He,
4: that could hurt him. There's you know potential skeletons in the closet. There's been news reports about his history of drug dealing. Um, all of that could be could be trouble. Uh, his kind of drain the swamp rhetoric could appeal to again to a kind of trumpian undertone in Ontario. but I don't know if that's enough to maybe one not even win the party leadership, but I don't know if that'll appeal to a lot of uh, you know mainstream Ontario voters.
1: Do you think it'll just appear like distraction?
4: I mean, I'm not sure. I think he'll run a a, a real campaign. I don't think he's going to just do it. Uh, for, for the you know the Twitter attention mm-hmm. and the social media attention. I think he, he wants to be leader. I don't know if it'll be a distraction. I think it could raise uh, interesting debates within the Conservative Party about uh, what kind of conservatism they want to be. Because again, the thing with a kind of Trumpian conservatism, a Fordian conservatism, is that it's in a sense both a kind of economic conservatism but also a social conservatism, but not necessarily a religious social conservatism. It's mm-hmm. almost, it kind of harnesses uh, kind of a a aversion a to the elites, even though both the Fords come from a, a political dynasty and a rather wealthy family and, and any conventional definition are elites themselves. But It's kind of funny
1: how they sell that, yeah. eh?
4: You know, but it's like Trump, same thing, Trump's a billionaire yeah, and, and yeah. not a, a self-made billionaire. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but they're able to, through their mannerisms, through how they look, how they speak,
0: mm-hmm. um,
4: really portray themselves as that. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, the Conservative Party maybe doesn't have right now you might have traditional social conservatives and then you might have more of a kind of blue tory bill davis type tories and then people in between those and and maybe more like libertarian types but there's no 40 kind of uh, i think person to capture that and he might be able to, to to get some support i don't know how big of a how big of a percentage the party uh, of people in the party are, are like that but who knows
1: Uh, He was going to run for mayor, then said uh, the other day when he announced his candidacy uh, for the leadership of the PC party that, uh, you know, he couldn't stand to watch the party go through what it is going through and and so on and so forth, disarray. Um, Does that wash with voters and can he still ride the fence? And if this doesn't work out, go back to the other one.
4: I mean, he could certainly try. I don't think that would preclude him. You know, it, it, it could, He could it still run for, for mayor
1: him. if he loses this, couldn't he?
4: Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's a balance here. It's almost like when, when people were talking about Jagmeet Singh running for the federal leadership, there was a suggestion that, well, maybe if he loses this, he'll still be a credible option for the Ontario New Democratic leadership, maybe in the near future. And I think it depends. If Ford runs a credible, serious campaign, gains a lot of support, maybe he loses, maybe he you know, runs a strong campaign, gets... 20, 30 percent of the support, um, raises a lot of money, gets a big volunteer base that might kind of raise his credibility of being a serious candidate for mayor. But if he does this and he does poorly or half asses it or makes controversial statements uh, or, or any of the above, that could hurt his uh, his path to mayor, because then you've just basically given your opponents, um, you know, opposition research based on your leadership run. So I think it's a it's a fine act. I mean, in a technical sense, he can certainly you know, run for this, lose, and then still run for mayor. That's not that's not out of the question. Yeah. Politically, would it hurt his run for mayor, and it depends on how well he would do.
1: Uh, how does he play outside of the greater Toronto area? I mean, does he resonate with voters there?
4: I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't seen too much on this. On the one hand, I mean, part of his ability was to kind of, and the Fords in general, the Ford family, was to kind of juxtapose the the downtown toronto elite um to the kind of more suburban areas of the city and say that you know they're taking all the tax money you're not getting good services they want to build bike lanes but what we need is lower taxes and 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 better roads for your car to you so you can get into the city and that kind of like you know the inner city versus the rest of the dta maybe that narrative could apply to kind of juxtaposing the gta to the rest of ontario and saying look toronto is taking all of the money and I'm looking out for people in working, like working people in places like Oshawa and places like North Bay and places like Orillia and all of these communities where you're not getting the services, even though, again, a lot of the data shows that Toronto kind of produces a net positive of taxes and it largely subsidizes other parts of the province. Again, facts are not always essential mm. in politics. And I think that might actually play to some people. But I don't know. I don't know if that'll appeal to the broader factor and again you know Doug Ford you know, he's not Rob Ford he doesn't have that kind of that personability and yeah. he could do what Doug Ford did he could try it and, and probably be, do a reasonable job but I don't know if that alone will be enough for him to get to mayor because he's not the same person
1: What will this leadership race look like compared to others considering it's such a condensed format or it will be or will have to be
4: I mean we'll have to see I mean it's, it's a mixture of of pragmatism, like, you have to get it done in, in a short amount of time, yeah. but also, you know, it still has to adhere to the party regulations, and I'm not, you know, an expert on those, but I think what, what they'll have to try to do is is get a few people registered and going, and they'll have to have some kind of debate system, some kind of, of way for, for Ontarians to meet the new leader, uh, you know, like any party. Like, so, you know, debates and, and the process aren't just for the members, it's actually for the public and for the media to kind of get a sense they have to have all of that but you're right it has to be you know rather rather condensed and I think it has to focus on um, building a kind of party unity whereas you know maybe two years out you can actually have more substantive debates about party policy I think the party would be wise to make this about how do we bring the party together and how do we you know pick the right person to 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 beat Kathleen Wynne in 2018 because if they don't do that and it gets into this debate about well, you know, is immigration good or bad? Or, you know, are Muslims taking over the city of Toronto? Or, you know, should we, you know, fire 100,000 workers or 200,000 workers? All that's going to do is create division in the party, and it doesn't have enough time for any leader, even if they win with a strong mandate, to actually heal those risks.
1: Has anybody heard from Patrick Brown? How is he responding to all of this? I mean, I
4: haven't really heard heard much, frankly. Mm. Um, I'm guessing... You know he's he's he's, he's staying low uh, based on the allegations. I'm guessing that if I was him, I'd probably not say too much. I mean,
0: mm. uh,
4: his his actions, alleged as they are, are, are a big part of why we're here. Maybe he feels still bitter that you know, like for all for all the accusations, you know, uh, look at the mess that's happened because I was forced out. But I I, I mean I can't speak for him.
1: Uh, Vic Fedeli says he's going to get rid of the rot. Uh, does that unite or divide? I'm not
4: sure. I guess it depends how he does it and what he means. I mean, this is all kind of breaking news again. You know, a few a few hours ago, when when I thought I was going to come on, I was going to talk about how you know Vic Fideli might actually be a good leader.
0: He might, you know,
4: we, <laughs> and and then now we find out that one, he's he's not going to seek the nomination. Um, it, it, I mean, I'm not sure. I think it it might have to do with administrative uh, layers in the party. It might have to look at things like. Uh, potential corruption and, and nepotism at the riding association level that could be very messy. But if he does it right, it could get rid of one of the big concerns people had about Patrick Brown. A lot of local activists were saying that the party was kind of quashing local voices. It could also have to do with things like harassment policies and ensuring that you know when staffers and and and, and other people are, are put into vulnerable positions that they have mechanisms to to deal with those things. So it doesn't end up with, you know, your leader having to resign at 9:45, you know, mm-hmm. at night, uh, you know, in a hurried, uh, a hurried uh, haze, right? So I think maybe it's in a in those kind of ways. I mean, it, again, if he does it properly, um, it could it could it could pave the way to a more functional party for the person who actually gets the job permanently. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, when this all broke, uh, everybody was trying to figure out what, what the heck it all meant and, and, and where do we go from here. Uh, then as time went by, uh, 12, 24 hours, uh, people were saying, well, and even thinking that the PCs could have been behind this, that they didn't like the way this guy wasn't resonating. So, boy, what a great way to hit the reset button. Uh, in the long run, they might be better, even though it's a short amount of time to do all of this. But, Christo, could it just be the point where this has just opened up a can of worms and it is so complicated that it's just impossible to pull it back up by the election?
4: I mean, um, you never want to say never in politics. I mean, yeah. it's not a lot of time, but, you know, if the party is, is quick with this, if they get you know a few credible leadership candidates to kind of jump in and, and really make a case for themselves, and then we start to get a sense, okay, here are the two or three or four people are credibly making a campaign, and here's what we know about them, and here's generally what they stand for. And then, you know, they can start to craft narratives, the media can start focusing on that. And that gets rid of the Patrick Brown story probably from the main pages, at least for now, and, and then people will start to move on in, in political terms, at least. Um, you know, I, again, my, my kind of, you know, inkling, if I was, you know, the, the running the Conservative Party, uh, I would have said that they should have selected a leader from the caucus, and if that person was selected in anything but a, you know, contested manner, maybe, you know, if the caucus was narrowly split. But if the caucus seemed united behind that person, I would I would stick with that person in the election and I wouldn't give them the interim tag. And 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 I would hope for the best. I think that would be the best option in my perspective. But, you know, I'm not running that party.
1: What is Kathleen Wynne thinking right now?
4: You know, I think she's she she certainly can't see this as bad news. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think. I mean, I, you know, maybe there was a sense like you know that Patrick Brown. You know, people didn't hate him, but people didn't really like him or even really know much about him. So you know, maybe there's a sense that they could pick someone better. That mm. could be a concern. But um, you know, this the, the the way this is all unfolded. You know, I think it, it makes uh, it makes it easier for both her and Andrea Horwath to really. Um, Make a case in distinct ways. Kathleen Wynne can say, "Look, the Conservatives might pick someone dangerous like 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 uh, Doug Ford, uh, and the only way to stop him is for you know every, everybody but Conservatives to vote for me. So stop voting for the NDP and and kind of push that way towards you know the kind of traditional stop the Conservatives by voting Liberals." Meanwhile, Andrea Horwath can say, "Look." There's, there's no effective opposition from the Conservatives. People don't like Kathleen Wynne. They don't like what she's done. The only option right now is for you to vote for the new Democratic Party because we're ready with a leader and a party to kind of go into the election. And the Conservatives can't really say either of those things right now at least. The one thing they do have is, again, uh, whoever wins will probably be, have united support from the caucus and the party if only because there's such a derision for Kathleen Wynn.
1: And, you know, we're, we're talking about how much the PCs will have to revamp where they're going. So will the opposition because the leadership's changed. So they'll have to revamp their strategy as well, right? Correct?
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, when you're looking at, you know, opposition research, you probably look at various factors. You look at specific policy points where a party's weak. You know, these are demographics we're targeting. So you say we're targeting women. What the con- what conservative policies would women most be bothered by? So that might not change. It might though. But if these broad policy and these broad narratives might still be the same. But yeah, there's specific policy points about Patrick Brown. One of the things you've seen from the parties is people don't know what who he is. We don't really know what he stands for. He was a Harper conservative. And he kind of jumped into Ontario politics relatively recently. And, and all of those things, and, and that goes out the window. You know, someone like Doug Ford, um, there's stuff to attack there, but it's it's in, in a very different way. Mm. And so you have to craft that research again. And, and and further to that, you might have a general narrative, but that general narrative might appeal to different demographics. And so you have to kind of target that again. And that, that's all going to cost money. That's going to take time, new polling. And again, as you know, and as we've noted, um, that person might be selected who knows, maybe only a few weeks before the election uh, or a couple months before the election, in which case there's not a lot of time to actually prepare. It's almost like a fight in a sense mm. where you're, you're an MMA fighter and you don't know who you're going to fight. You can train in general, but you, uh, you really need to, to be able to study a particular person. And it puts you at a bit of a disadvantage, although I would rather be in the liberals or NDP shoes than the conservatives. Mm. But it puts them at a bit of a disadvantage.
1: Christo Abelese has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on
0: AM 900 CHML.